Welcome to Church Experience Online. We're so happy you joined us today. As you watch this teaching video, if you have any questions or need help getting connected, please don't hesitate to reach out by phone or email. Also, our website is the best place to go if you would like to access helpful Growth Steps resources, join a serving team, connect in a life group, get your questions answered, or support this movement financially by giving online. At the end of this teaching video, you'll hear one of our Church Experience original worship songs, and we hope that gives you an opportunity to worship and reflect on what you learned. Thanks again for joining us at Church Experience Online. That was fun. (laughs) You know, in this teaching series that we're in on our beliefs, we are studying the ultimate questions in life. I don't think there could be a more important topic because we're studying the questions that matter most. We're also doing that through the lens of world religions. So each week we're kind of looking at a different religion in the world so that we can learn more about what it is that we believe. Not trying to knock other groups of people, but we're just trying to learn more about what we believe through seeing through the eyes of what other people in the world believe. And you know, last week where we left off, we left off with this verse in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. It says, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Like put it under a magnifying glass. What is it that you believe? Why do you believe it? And and it doesn't just say watch your doctrine though, does it? It says watch your life and your doctrine. So, So watch how you're living because sometimes you can believe something intellectually and not live it out. But, but make no mistake about it, you always live out of what you believe. We're always living what we're believing. That's why this conversation matters so much. That's why we decided to do this teaching series and felt God leading us to it because it's so important that we know what we believe and why we believe it. The, the belief is like the, the foundation, the framework of our life. Well, as we've been looking at different religions, last week we looked at the Mormon faith, which is prevalent. In fact, we had a little fun video of some Mormons knocking on the door. And, uh, you know, if you've ever had someone for a religious purpose knock on your door and it wasn't a Mormon, it was probably who? It's probably Jehovah's Witnesses. How many of you guys have had those guys knock at your door before? A whole bunch of us. Same was true in the first service. I think a lot of us have experienced that. In fact, I play basketball on a regular basis and some of the guys I play with and they're friends of mine, are Jehovah's Witnesses. So, so this is a part of our community. It's not somewhere out there, but it's right here where we live. People believe these things. So how, 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 what do the Jehovah's Witnesses believe, and how can that inform and help us know what it is we believe and what we'll call the, the Christian faiths? So in 1961, Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, they published their own version of the Bible called the, the New World Translation, and that's where things really started, I think, taking off for them, and, and it, but it had roots Prior to that, in the 1870s, uh, the, the religion was officially formed by a guy named Charles Russell. In fact, until 1931, they were called Russellites. Not, not JW, not Jehovah's Witness, Russellites. But they, they changed their name and, uh, and then published, 30 years later from their name change, they published the, the New World Translation of the Bible. And Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, just a little bit about them before we get into their beliefs, they worship in really simple buildings. Uh, they call them kingdom halls. Maybe you've driven past some of them around the area. And uh, they, they have a lot of things that they, they believe and they will do or won't do. For example, uh, they won't participate in mili- military service. 
They won't salute the flag or sing the Star Spangled Banner. Uh, they won't take blood transfusion, uh, transfusions. Uh, they, they, they don't believe in that. They uh, refuse the cross as a religious symbol. Uh, there's a, a number of things that, that maybe you, if you have a friend that's a Jehovah's Witness that you've experienced, they don't celebrate birthdays or Christmas. So maybe you remember in school having a, a, a child in, in maybe your kid's class or your class that they wouldn't, they wouldn't participate in the celebrations. And so just a little bit about them. But let's, let's get into their beliefs a little bit more. So how do they get their beliefs spread around the world? Because it's grown a lot since the 1800s when it was founded, before the Russellites started. They've really grown a ton. How do they do that? Well, they put something in your hand when they knock on your door. Have you ever had the offer? What is it? It's a magazine, right? It's a Watchtower magazine. In fact, the Watchtower magazine is the most circulated magazine in print in our entire world. 83 million copies are printed in their public edition. They have a private study edition, but the, the public edition, 83 million copies around the world. And they, they, now, they used to do it more regularly, but now it's about three times a year that they print this and they publish it. And it, it's circulated into numerous dozens of languages around the world. And this is why what we talked about last week is so important that, that we're careful that we don't choose our beliefs based on what has the shiniest wrapper, okay? It's okay to do that when you're in the candy aisle at the store, right? But it's not okay when it comes to your beliefs because you can present and package something in a really good package and it not be true. So that's why we're doing this teaching series to drill down on what it is we believe and why we believe it. But you, you know, you can put a, a glossy paint color on something to make it look good, but underneath it's, you know, rot, rotted wood. You know, when we, we got our house, it was a foreclosure about four and a half years ago. And uh, since that time, we've remodeled a lot of things in our house and tried to update it from the condition we got it in. And one of the things we first did is we painted the whole exterior of the house, and then we painted the whole interior of the house. So, so all the original walls have, have paint over them. Well, like you in your home or apartment, you, you didn't want to uh, get rid of those paint cans because if a kid were to put a nick in the wall, you want to be able to touch it up without repainting the whole room again. So you store those, and we've always stored ours in our closet. And our closet's just been kind of the, the area we neglected, you know. And so finally, this year, we we went out and went to Ikea and got some, some uh, shelves for our closet. Finally, get our closet organized after four and a half years. It's about time, and we get it all set up. And, and we put those paint cans um, up on the top of a shelf underneath the, the hanging rack where the clothes are uh, up against the back wall. And so we have our, our paint cans in there. And I'm going into this newly designed closet. You're ready to go pulling a shirt off the rack. And as I pull the shirt off the rack, it catches one of these paint cans, pulls it off with the shirt, drops to the ground and explodes. Top comes off black paint all over my leg, all over the carpet in our closet, all over the wall. And it's a mess. I'm, I'm telling you, it was bad. Like, it was everywhere. And I, I instantly knew the carpet's done, right? I mean, it's black paint. That's not coming out. Like, it was, it was bad. But I don't really know what to do because the paint's actively running down my legs, running down the wall. Like, what do you do? I mean, you don't just, gra- anything you grab to clean it up with is going to ruin it. So I'm like, I didn't want to grab one of our nice towels. And so I see the tub, so I, I go hop in the tub, and I start to let the water run over my leg, and I'm trying to clean up my leg. But the tub's not draining as fast as it's filling. And it's filling with this black, soupy paint water. So not only am I not able to get the paint off, I can't get out now because now I'm covered in this black paint. And if I get out, I'm tracking paint through the house. I can't dry off because I'm going to ruin whatever I dry off on. I'm in a mess. My bathroom door is shut. And so I don't know who's close to help me. So I I literally, I didn't know what to do. I was like panicked. So I just said, 
help! <laughs> Just like that, I promise. Help! I start calling out names. I don't even know who's close of my other five members of our family. I don't know who can help. I'm just calling out names. Help! You know. Finally, a couple of my kids come to the rescue, and they come in into the room and bring me some old towels from the garage, and I, I clean up and got the mess. Thankfully, finally cleaned up, but the carpet, it's, it's trash. It's, it's done. We, it's, we're just going to call it modern art for a while. You know, it's going to be this new look in our closet. You know, I, I think when we painted our, our home, what we were envisioning, what we were envisioning is this, this fresh coat that would make everything look better, a, a, a transformation. It, it, it would change things. And, and, and you know what? Sometimes, sometimes you, you can forget what's behind when you're looking at something that looks good on the outside. You can forget what's underneath. And I, I think that if you're not careful, and I think that's why Scripture says watch your doctrine closely because if you're not careful, you can get caught up in some of the lies of our world. We're not even talking just other religions. I'm talking about some of the lies that we can buy into the world that are not lined up with the Bible. And we can say, well, that looks good. That looks good on the outside. I, I, I like that, but... but but it's not really aligned with what Jesus taught and how he lived. And, and so we have to be careful that we, that we don't just take on face value, judge the book by the cover, but we get into it and we actually study what we believe. Again, why this conversation is so important. And I think as a side point here, when I see the passion of Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses and how passionate they are spreading their teaching, and it reminds me of, man, are, are, am I just as passionate? They're, putting out in a magazine, they're knocking on my door. Am I that passionate to get out what I believe is the truth? And I don't have to do it in that way, but am I passionate about sharing with people I care about what, what really matters in truth? You know, a Jehovah's Witness knocking at your door, they would say, well, you say, well, no thanks, I'm a Christian. They would say to you, well, actually, I'm a Christian too. Same thing for Mormons. They would say that too. But as we talked about last week when we were studying the Mormon religion, uh, they have a lot of beliefs that are not what we would call orthodox beliefs. Now, they might teach the Bible their own version of it, and we'll get to that later, but, but they would say they're a Christian, but we would say that they have a lot of beliefs that are not orthodox belief, meaning, we just defined that last week, orthodox meaning accepted by most believers for most of Christian history, so they're, they're departing from what the collective community of believers throughout time has said, this is what the Bible teaches, they're saying, well, actually, you know, this guy, Russell, he, he does some of these other things, we actually think there's a, a different way, a new way, or whatever it is, we're putting a new wrapper on it, and kind of leading us in a different direction, what are some of those beliefs? Well, they would, they would teach that uh, they don't believe in, in hell, they don't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Just, you know, he was resurrected in spirit, but that was it. They don't believe that, that Jesus and God are one. In fact, they reject the whole idea of the Trinity. Now, they'll say, well, the Trinity, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, and it's, and it's not, but it's the clear teaching of the Trinity, meaning one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, is taught clearly throughout the Bible. In fact, you see it really evident in Jesus' own baptism, right? The Father in heaven, this is my Son, Jesus, in whom I'm well pleased, and the Spirit descended down on him. You see all three persons uh, together um, and working in unison. And they, they would reject that idea of the person of the Holy Spirit. They would even, probably more importantly, reject the idea of, of for, uh, forgiveness found through faith in Christ alone. They would add to that. And so, so let's break down some of these beliefs and, 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 and the process, again, not to knock another group, but to say, hey, here's what we believe. If, if you're a follower of, of, of a classic Christianity, Christian beliefs, this is what we believe. Now, you might be in the room, and you're welcome to be here, and I'm so glad you're here. You might not believe what I believe, and that's okay. I mean, you're just, you're exploring, you're, you're learning, and that's okay, and, and you're asking questions. That's a great place to be. I'm not expecting everyone in the room believes the same thing, but, but when I say we or the Christian belief, what I'm talking about is that throughout Christian history, this is what we believe. So, 
Let's dig into it. A Jehovah's Witness, they would say that, that Jesus did not resurrect bodily. Well, let's just look at a few quick beliefs and a, a few quick verses before we make this first lesson point in your teaching notes. And that's in Luke chapter 24. Jesus' own words, when he was resurrected after the cross, after he came back, uh, Luke 24, verse 39. He said, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So Jesus was resurrected in bodily form, spirit and body. And so we, we would believe that. And Jehovah's Witnesses would say, well, he didn't really resurrect in the body. And we'd say he actually said he did. And we believe that. It's important to our faith. Um, also, the question of is the father and the son one? Is, is Jesus and God one? Uh, John 10, chapter 30. Let's not take what people say. Let's look at what Jesus said. Verse 30. He says, I and the Father are what? Are one. Everybody say one. Are one. So he said it himself, we are one. In fact, some of them might say, well, I don't know that Jesus was, was even a God. I don't, I don't know that he was God. He was a good person or a good teacher. But he was God. In fact, if you just study the life, not only did he claim to be, uh, if you look at what he, uh, throughout his life, um, the attributes of Jesus that he, the, he evidenced, that would only be true of God. Think about it. There's so many verses if we had time we could go through. I have them listed here on my notes. We don't have time to go through all these, but he, he knew all things. John 1.48, John 2.25, John 6.64. I'm not gonna give you all these verses and all, but, but he knew all things. That was evident. He knew everything. So that was something only God could do. He was all powerful. I mean, he could cause the storm to be still. He was all powerful. There's so many examples. Sinless. He was without sin. He was eternal. So all the, all the attributes of who Jesus was, they were attributes of God. And not only did he claim to be one with God, and so claiming be, to be God, he was also, Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, as the Apostle Paul put it, because Jehovah's Witnesses say he was not God and man. They said, uh, Colossians 2, chap, uh, chapter 2, verse 9 says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Okay. Take my teaching hat off for a second and stop there. You see what I'm saying? They're, 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 they're claiming different beliefs. The Bible's actually contradicting those, even Jesus' own words, and saying, well, no, I, I am one with the Father, or I, I did rise in, in, the, in the flesh. So here's, here's, here's my point in all that, my question. We'll get back to some more beliefs in a second. Am I a learner? Am I seeking knowledge about who God is? Or am I just taking things on their face value? I just kind of come and go through services, and I, I, or do I actually really seek out increased truth in my life? Am I searching God's word? Am I learning? One of my professors, at, when I was going through Bible school, he said, you know, always ask the question when you read the Bible, what is it I can learn about God from this? What, what, what can I learn about God from this? And, and so I want to be always learning and searching and asking questions. And as I do that, here, here, here's what's so important. As I grow in knowledge, I'm going to grow in confidence because I know what I actually believe, which is why we want to do this, have this conversation. Because as I grow in confidence in what I believe, then listen, I can have more trust. If I have more knowledge leads to confidence, which leads to trust, what's the foundation in any relationship? What makes a great marriage? What makes a great friendship? 
You trust the other person. You trust they have your best interests in mind. So here it is in your notes. Increasing my knowledge of God's truth is increasing my trust in God, which is the foundation of relationship. So I, I, want, I, don't, I don't just want information. That's not the point that, that I could you know, teach a, a seminary class on whatever topic in the Bible. That's not the end goal that I'll just have more information. But the information, listen, it leads to transformation. That's what I want in my life and that's what I want in your life. More transformation. I want to be more like Jesus. But I can't be more like Jesus if I don't know him more, if I don't know about him. So I, I want to always be a learner. Learning helps me get where I need to go. Family went out to a restaurant. It was only the second time we'd been there. Went there earlier this year, and we were trying to enjoy a family meal together, but it didn't go so well. I'm going to blame it on the, the small uh, table and small booths that we were in, that we were packed into. Uh, but honestly, it was probably clumsiness. It caused me to spill my entire drink over the whole table. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? It made me feel better. Okay, a couple of us, right? Like, so horrible, isn't it? Because it just goes all over the table. It soaks all the napkins. It drips down in the booth seat. Everybody's got to get up, and then you got to clean it off. And then it's sticky, right? And it's just, ah. So, all so I, I, I spilled my drink, and then one of my kids in that same meal spilled their drink. So two of us <laughs> in the same meal spill a drink all over the table, and it was, I'm telling you, it was, it was bad. It was a mess. It was embarrassing. Well, at some point in the conversation, one of my kids wanted to use my phone, so I let him use my phone, and, and later on, uh, I, I needed it back. And I said, hey, can I, can I see my phone back? And, and they said, I don't know where it is, Dad. And I'm like, I gave it to you earlier. Do you don't remember? Is that? No, I don't know where it is. And everybody's looking under the table. We're getting up again. Like, I mean, this is, like, not going well. And we can't, we can't find it anywhere. And so Jennifer finally gets the idea, why don't we use Find My iPhone? And I'm like, okay, let, let's give that a shot. And so I type in my, my information on her phone. And if you've never done this before, you don't have an iPhone. If you have any other iPhone and you type, go to that, this app and you, you type in your, your information, then it'll pull up a map and it'll show you pinpoint where your phone's at. And then it'll also make your phone beep. So we hit the button and, and all of a sudden we hear this in the middle of this restaurant as if we hadn't got enough attention. Beep. <laughs> beep. And now everybody is disrupted from their nice meal and they're looking at our family around this table, the family that has created two messes that's been searching the booth and now there's this Beep, and it's coming from underneath us, by the way. So, beep, and we're looking, and we can't, still can't see it. Beep, it's still going, but we can't turn it off because we got to find it. It's somewhere in there. And then one of the kids like, Dad, it's down inside the booth. <laughs> so I'm looking. I'm like, there's no way I can get down in there and reach that, but I need my phone. Beep. It's like, can you guys stop that over there, right? And so finally we realized that the only way we're going to get it is to pull the booth apart. And thankfully, these booth seats were Velcroed on to the wood frame. So there I am in the restaurant. Family's cleared out of the way, pulling off the booth so I can get to my phone. This is a really bad day, right? It's like we will not go back to that restaurant anytime soon. Oh, man. And, and, but you know what? What saved the day was with this GPS system that, that find my iPhone. And, and, and you use the same system, right, to get where you're going. When you might go to a new home and address and you type in a location and it tells you pinpoint, this is where you need to go. Here's how to get there. It might not have the beep. But it, it leads you. It tells you where to go. Now, here's the thing. Be, behind whatever it is you're seeing on your screen is a matrix of knowledge. Somebody has taken the time. In fact, if you go to Google Maps and you drop the little pinpoint guy on the street, it's pretty cool, huh? Because you can see the street view. You can do a 360. 
You can go, so, I've always wanted to go to Paris, France. Well, you can go there now. You just, it's a lot cheaper. Just go on Google Maps and you can look around. There's the Eiffel Tower. Okay, that was a lot cheaper than plane tickets. I mean, you can just, you can go visit places. It's amazing, but someone's done the work. They've documented and they've, they've filmed and they've typed in street names and house numbers. And, and there's a matrix of knowledge behind that. So when you type in something, it can lead you where you need to go because there's knowledge backing it, Right? And, and here's the thing, what, what God's word is, is it's ultimate knowledge, ultimate wisdom from the one who created life, the one who knows how everything works together and connects and all the interconnectedness. He, he has all knowledge, all wisdom. And he said, this is my way, walk in it. You know where you are, but do you know where you need to go? Because I know where you need to go and I see, by the way, more clearly where you are than what you see. So, so wherever you find yourself these days, I don't know if you'd say my world's a mess or I'm on track and I'm on the success drive and I'm going to get there and I don't know where you are where you think you're going but but here's what I do know that God's word is the best the best description of where I actually am the condition of my soul the condition of my world if I want to learn more about my world I got to learn more about God's word and who he is and what he says about this world but it's also the best roadmap it's the best GPS to get me from where I am to where it is that I need to go and where I want to go because if, if, I, if I'll trust him, if I'll follow him, he will take me from where I am to where he wants me to go. And, and by the way, he's, he's a loving father that always has my best interests in mind. He knows better how to plan my life than I do. He, he, he knows what's best for you more than you do. In fact, he cares more than you do, and he loves you more than, than, than you can ever imagine. So, so my question is simply, are you growing in knowledge are you learning more about God's word, about what you actually believe? Or are you just trusting that even a, a pastor who might have good intentions to, to feed you spiritually, you're, you're trusting that, that that's all the, the, the nutrition spiritually that you're getting? Really? I mean, what if you ate once a week? How healthy would you be? For, for 30 minutes, he's like, okay, game on. Let's, let's, let's eat as much as we can. How healthy would you be? Right, you wouldn't be healthy by the end of a few weeks, a few months, like you'd be skin and bone, you'd be malnourished because it's not enough. So even though there's great Bible teaching, and listen, I still learn from others, and there's, there's technology, there's a lot of ways to learn, you need to become a self-feeder. Meaning over time, you need to take ownership for your, your nutrition spiritually. Some of us are super passionate about our physical health, and you work out a few times a week, and you try to eat clean and all these things, and that's so good, and give you energy and life and all that's so great, but the Bible says in Timothy, physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things in the present life and the life to come. So it's saying what's even more important than being physically healthy is being spiritually healthy. So, so I get that in part through knowing God's word. So, so are you? I'm just asking. I mean, you've got to figure this out in your life, but are, are, are you feeding yourself spiritually on a daily basis? Because if you're feeding yourself on the daily with God's word, man, you're, you're going to grow. You're going to be refreshed and strengthened. And, and I'll just take a quick pause before we move on and just say this. Some of you don't know how. And I know there's a lot of us in the room that we read the Bible every day. And some of us have been doing it for a long time. And we know the value of this. So maybe this is just a good reminder. But there's also many in the room who are not in the word daily. Or really ever, other outside of an environment like this. And I'm just saying, this is a gift from God. This will help you so much. You need to hunger for this knowledge. It will transform your life. So how do you do it? It's just a practical thing. I had a friend in our church that was going through a rough time at the end of last year, and I, and I was just coaching him. I said, hey, I wanna challenge you to go 50 days, get a streak going, and then, and then send me a screenshot 
of, you know, of your Bible app. If, you, if you're on Version Bible app, it'll track every day you log in. It'll tell you if you got streak going. I said, get to 50 days and send me a screenshot. He's now somewhere between 100 and 150 days. He's telling me how much that's changed his life and impacted him. And, and, and maybe for you, some of you just need to get, get a streak going. Whether you use a Bible app or not, you just need to say, all right, Monday morning, I, I'm hitting the ground running, and if I don't do anything else that day, I'm going to be in God's Word, even 10 minutes, 15 minutes. I'm, I'm going to read His Word. You say, I'm not a reader. I don't know where to start. That's where I would encourage you to get a tool, like the YouVersion Bible app. I highly recommend it. It's the, the, the most popular Bible app that's out there. It's, it's incredible, and they have all kinds of lesson plans. If you don't know where to start, you've never read the Bible before, start with something simple. Do a lesson plan. If you, you feel a lot of anxiety in your life, type in anxiety, and they'll pull up all different lesson plans you can study, and they'll take you through a week or a month or whatever of, of different plans related to that topic, and then you can just walk through it day by day. And, and, and that'll, that'll get you into it and get your appetite wet and get you, get you encouraged and growing. Maybe you want to read through the Bible, okay? You can do that on there. And, and in fact, you can dig deep and drill down on specific parts. What I love to do is I love to go on walks. I like to get my physical exercise in and my spiritual exercise in at the same time. And I'll go on a walk on my street and I'll put my Bible app on. And, and if, you, uh, if you, I can help you find this if you need help. But you can go on there and you can hit play and it'll play it to you. You can even do it one and a half, two times speed, whatever you want. And I'll be out walking my street, listening to God's word. I'll go through a bunch of chapters or a whole book of the Bible, and I'll just, I'll just let God's word wash over me and, and, and correct my thinking, and it's just so good. But I want to encourage you, get in God's word. Study it. Learn from it. Get, increase your knowledge of God's word. We're going to go back to the, the beliefs of Jehovah's Witness here for a minute, and I, I, I think what I'm trying to say is that, that God's word is so important because if you don't know what you believe, then, then like a wave of the sea, you can be tossed, you know, all around by those who present their case or what you should believe in a very passionate way. And the Jehovah's Witnesses would say things like, well, we, we, don't, we don't think you should believe in the Trinity, that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that, that they're one. And we don't believe that Jesus, uh, as God, we don't believe him as God. He, he's, he was not one with God. He's not God. But throughout um, church history, the church has always believed John chapter one, verse one was referring to Jesus as the word of God, that he is God. And I wanna put up here on the screen for you two verses. The New International Version, which we read from and a lot of churches do, and then the Jehovah's Witness New World Translation. And you can see it says, what we would read, in the beginning was the word, talking about Christ, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And we believe that's core to our doctrine, that Jesus is God, and he's been there with the Father from the beginning. But in the Jehovah's Witness Bible, they've changed that, just subtly. In the beginning, the word was, and the word was with God, and the word was a God. So they've kind of just changed a little, just a little word, just a, just a little little tweak, right? Just a little change, not a big deal, but but changing a, a core doctrine and justifying it through this translation. And, and but here's the thing: I don't know that most of us in the room are in danger of trying to pen and paper change scripture. I don't think you're gonna go home today and start rewriting the New Testament. I, I don't know that there's any of us that ambitious to do that, but I think what we do is we do that all the time. It's just a little change. Like, we just to make our life a little better, to make God's word fit into our world. We, we make little compromises, little changes. I wonder if God would, through his spirit, would convict someone today in the room who might be saying things like, well, it's, I know it's not right, but it's better than a worse alternative. <laughs> now, it's just a little change. I wonder if some of us would say, you know, everyone else is doing it. And so we think that maybe it's right because everyone else is. I wonder if some in the room would say, you know, nobody else will even know. It's not gonna hurt anybody. What about this one? If you try, you know, it's it's for their good in the end. You know, it's it's just for their own good. The end goal is worth it. It justifies the way to get there. You know, they made a mistake, so it was their bad. So I'm just kind of settling the score, or I'm the exception. 
You know, God, God, God will understand. God will understand. I have good reasons. See, we have all different kinds of ways that we change, maybe not literally that verse, but the way that we change God's word, we know it's right, we know his way, and we so easily justify and change things to they fit in our life. My brother-in-law visited just recently in our house, and my wife wanted to make him feel at home because every time we go visit their home for Christmas, they, they ha- always have cookie dough in the fridge, right? And everybody snacks on the cookie dough. It's like a family tradition, and I've come to love cookie dough. I'm not talking about, like, you make the cookies. I'm talking about, like, you get the Pillsbury roll of cookie dough, and you just open it, and you just get a spoon, a big spoon. And you, Do you know, anybody love cookie dough like that? You know what I'm talking Okay, so there's, there's a few other people here that got great taste buds, too. And so you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just so good. It's so good. If you haven't tried it, you're missing out of life it's just so good and and so Jennifer wanted to treat him well but also she knew how much I love it so she got two rolls of cookie dough put them in the fridge so all week when he was we're just we're snacking on this cookie dough we're enjoying this he goes to leave and there's still a little surprisingly just a little bit of cookie dough still left and, and I had this moral dilemma <laughs> because I know as a Christian I'm supposed to share and put others first and be generous but I'll be honest with you, in the flesh, I just wanted to eat the last cookie dough, and I was kind of glad he was leaving so I could have it all to myself, you know what I'm saying? And so I honestly thought this as he's leaving. I was like, I should offer it to him for the ride. It'd be nice to eat as he's driving down the highway home. But then I was like, I literally, I was like, just real quick, in my head, it was like, but this isn't healthy, you know what I mean? It's like, I would be like, I don't want to be a stumbling block to my brother, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to, like, give him something that's not good for his health. I, I should I should keep it here because, I mean, that's that's not right. I don't want to hurt his, you know, he needs to get healthy, and so I want, I want him to be healthy, you know? So I was literally thinking this. Thank God I did actually offer him the cookie dough, and even more so, he declined it, so I still got to eat it anyway. <laughs> but how funny, how quick your mind is like, well... They, 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 no one will really care. It's not that big of a deal. We know the right thing. We know what God's word is. Some of you were raised in homes where your parents taught you God's word from a young age. You know what the right thing is to do. It's not usually the information. It's that a lot of times we know the right thing, but we try to change it so that it will fit in our life. And that's no different than we can't point a finger at another religion and say, look, ha they've changed God's word to make it fit with what they want to do. How much do I do the same? In fact, I put that question in your teaching notes. Here it is. Uh, Truth is not a buffet of my preferences. It's not a buffet of my preferences. I I can't just pick out what I want. So the question is, am I making it a buffet? Am I hand-selecting what it is that I want to follow? Or am I really trusting the Lord and following his ways? You know, I love 2 Timothy chapter 4. Some very relevant verses, I think, for our, our day that we live in. Relevant, though, obviously for the early church, too. It was written to them originally, and it says in verse 3, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. So they don't want to talk about their beliefs. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. One of the reasons I'm so passionate that we're doing this teaching series is because I think it's so easy now to, you can, there's so much content out there. I can just kind of consume what supports what I really want to do. I can just surround myself with success teaching and motivational talks. And I, I can just surround myself with people who will agree with what I agree. I just type it into Google and whatever it is. And I can find experts who will affirm whatever it is that I really want to believe in whatever I really want to do. And, and it's, it's kind of like some of us might start viewing with that mentality that God's word is kind of like a buffet. I'm walking down the buffet line. I'll take a little bit of that. No thanks no thanks I'll take some of that we just kind of take what we want but but truth is not a buffet it's not a buffet of preferences 
but we can easily get caught up in that. And I think maybe a helpful analogy to think through how I should think about God's word is I need to think about God more of like a chef, a gourmet chef who, who knows exactly how to nourish me spiritually, who knows exactly what I need. And instead of viewing his truth like a buffet, I'll just take what I want, leave the rest. No, instead I say, God, I trust you. I submit to you. Not very popular in our culture, but I, I will obey. I want obedience I want faithfulness to what you want because I believe in your hand. I believe that the Father, that you're the ultimate chef and whatever you serve up to me, it's gonna be nourishing to me. It's gonna be good for me. Even if I don't like it on the outset, even though if I'm not sure I understand it, I'm gonna trust that what your ways are better than my ways. So maybe you could read God's word with less fear or concern or justification and trying to see, well, how can I fit my life in there? Instead say, how can I align my life with God's word because I trust him? I trust that his ways are better. Kind of like a championship coach. You know, they, they know what's best for their players. They know when they need rest. They know when to push them. They know when they need to discipline them and bring them back on track and what areas they're weak and strong in. See, God knows you and he knows what's best and he gave you his word as your internal uh, guidance system throughout life because he knows what you need. He always knows what we need. Well, one of the beliefs of the Jehovah's Witness Church is that they don't, they don't, teach that there's a hell where there's eternal suffering. They, they don't believe in that. And maybe this is a belief that you've struggled with. And maybe some of your friends, when they've been gut level honest with you, they've, they've, they've brought this up. Well, how could a loving God send people to hell? I mean, if God's so loving and so good, how could, how could he punish someone like that? I mean, it's, it's a very valid question. It's a good question to talk about. What does the Bible say about hell? How could a loving God send someone to help? That doesn't make sense to me. I don't understand. Well, I'm going to try to answer that to the best of my ability to, but I want to first look at what is the clear teaching of Scripture, of, of God's Word, when it comes to the topic of hell. In Matthew chapter 10, uh, verse 28, Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says this. He says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So he talks about it being a very physical place, body and soul, where there's destruction in hell. And then in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, it says, then they will go away to eternal punishment. Jesus' own words, eternal punishment. So it's, it's lasting. It's a place where it's not ending. It's eternal punishment, but the righteous to e- eternal life. So we know that there's fire, and that it's a place of terrible torment. You can't escape from it. It's eternal. And we also know that people will be there. If you look in the book of Revelation, chapter 20, and, and I think in, in recent decades especially, this has been a debate throughout, throughout history, but I, I think I've even seen some people who like try to justify some of these words, and they drill down on, well, I don't know if this word meant that, and this thing meant that, and so I don't know if this is, because it says what it says, and there's no way to get around that and say, well, there's no hell because it's so apparent. And we're gonna talk a little bit more about, about that in a moment, that specific point, because I think some people dismiss some of these scriptures for different, the different reasons. I'm gonna come back to that, but let me, let's just look at what it actually says. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. God's word says, and the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So this is this ongoing physical place of punishment. And then down in verse 15, we know that there'll be people there as well, not just the devil. It says, anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. 
So the Jehovah's Witnesses, they don't believe that. They don't believe that, that there is a, a place of eternal punishment. In fact, that verse I read earlier, Matthew 25, 46, I'm going to put it up on the screen, contrasted with what I read you from the New International Version with the Jehovah's Witness translation of the Bible. So you can see how they've changed it from eternal punishment to these will depart into everlasting cutting off. So that's what they've kind of changed it to. They think that means an everlasting cutting off, not you know, eternal punishment. But the whole of Scripture is pretty clear on what it believes. But still that question from our friends, well, how could a loving God do that? How could, but I would propose to you, if some have, as some have said, that, that it's, it's not unloving for God to have punishment. In fact, the most loving thing for God to do is to be just and punish for sin. Because, because here's the thing, you can't have a loving God and not have an angry God. You, you can't, they're, they're mutually exclusive. You, you, you can't have one without the other. And the reason why is this, because if God really loved you, in fact, let's break it down from God the Father and break it to a human father. A human father loves his two children and the one child is hurting or beating or worse, abusing the other child. It's not loving to say, well, I love them both. It's okay, I'm just gonna look the other way, maybe separate them. No, a, a loving parent comes in and says, that's not right. There'll be punishment there. We're gonna need to redirect action because that's wrong. And worse yet, if someone comes along and, 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 and they murder one of those children, it's not loving for someone to say, well, I love everybody. It's okay. It's not a problem. Let's just, let's, let's just make sure it doesn't happen again. No, that's not a loving thing to do. In fact, you love that child so much, the just thing is for that person who did the atrocity to go away for a very long time, the rest of their life, so that they can never do that again to someone else. That's loving because you love so much that you can't allow evil just to be, it's not a big deal. That's what it means to be just. And a judge who sentenced someone to life in prison for murdering someone. They're not being unjust. In fact, they're being just. They're being right. They're, they're not, they didn't, they weren't the perpetrator. They were someone who brought justice. What was right? God in heaven, our loving Father, looked down in a world who, because of our sin, we hurt each other. We ruined the world He created. And worse yet, we murdered His Son on the cross. Our sin did that, not just some Roman soldiers 2,000 years ago. That was my sin that did that. That was yours. And, and because we did that, a just God can't look the other way. He loves us so much, and, and he loves what he created so much that he couldn't just look the other way because of sin. He said the wages of sin is death, eternal death, separation from ever. I can't just, I can't. Holiness and wickedness, they can't just mix together in heaven. It's okay, everything's fine. No, I, there's gotta be justice. But because I love them so much, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. This is the heart of our message, the gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, not eternal punishment, but eternal life. And so that tells me two very important things theologically. One, that God loves me so much. He loves you so much that no matter what you did, to the extent of even leading to the death of his son, that he would give up what was most special to him, his only son, so that you could have life. And the, your punishment that was due for your sins and mine would fall on his son instead. That's crazy love. He loves you that much. But it also tells me that it's open for everyone. None of this talk about, well, he's such a judgmental God and that's not fair and I can't believe that he would send people to, no, he doesn't send anybody to hell. 
The only people in hell are people who have rejected God and said, no, I don't want to be with you. And as I heard one person say, God's so loving, he's not going to force you to spend eternity with him if you reject him here. So he's not going to allow us to push him away and say, no, I don't want you, God. And then say, no, you have to come with me forever to eternity. No, he's going to let us suffer the consequences of our sin. And that's why this matters. But he says it's open for everyone, for all who would believe You don't have to suffer eternal judgment. That's why the gospel is so amazing. You can have eternal life, not eternal punishment. And it's open to everyone who would believe. So we don't make the message easier to swallow by taking away things like punishment, taking away hell. We don't make it easier for the world to understand. Let's just minimize that. We don't have to talk about that. No, what we do when we do that, we take away the power of the gospel. So, so that, that's, that's the power of the transformational and forgiving love of God that he would give all for us. Some kids went to a firehouse and a uh, firefighter holds up mobile device, says, you guys know what this is, young kids? Smoke detector, smoke detector. Yep, you got it. Does anybody know what this means? <laughs> One little, little kid said, yeah, that, that means dinner's ready in my house. <laughs> I mean, somebody overcooked the food, and I hear the beep. Time to eat. You know, you've heard the phrase where there's smoke, there's fire. You guys heard that? When there's smoke, there's fire. We're talking about the fire of hell, but let's bring it to a more today for us in our, in our life. How do you know that there's a fire brewing in your life when there's problems brewing? It's when you see the warning signs, when you see the smoke, where there's smoke, there's fire. And what's the warning sign? Here it is. I put it this way in your teaching notes. Where am I tempted to push truth out of the way so that I can do what I want? That, that's where I know that there's a fire brewing in my soul. That's where I know that there's a problem. When I'm pushing truth away so I can do what I want, I really want to do this. And I, I just, I know God's not, but man, we, we love each other. And, or I really want this. Or I think God wants this for me. Or whatever the thing is. Every time I push truth out of the way so I can do what I want, I suffer consequence. Thank God he's a forgiving God, but he says, walk in my way and I'll lead you to life eternal. Well, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they claim that their translation of the Bible is the most accurate, unbiased Bible version available today. The translators, they, they quote, the translators remain anonymous so that all glory of the translation will go to Jehovah God. So their 1931 translation of the Bible that they use, we've already showed, says some different things than what we believed historically in Christianity. They said, it's the most accurate. It's the most unbiased. <laughs> and the translators are going to remain anonymous. But as people dug into this, they've realized that the New World Translation was a group of six men, not anonymous. They found out who they are. Frederick Franz was the head of this group. Five of the six men were not experts at all on the Bible. And the one guy who knew something was a knowledgeable amateur at best, Frederick Franz. And, but these guys, they, they were not experts in Bible study. They had no formal training in biblical languages at all. So these six groups get together. The one guy knows a little bit, and they're kind of pulling together, and they make their own translation. Contrast that, too. Just for example, there's numerous great English translations of the Bible, but the one that we use, and I think is probably, if not the most popular, one of the most popular and widely used across our country and the 300,000-plus churches there are in America, probably the number one or number, one of the number one translations used, the New International Version, which we've always utilized here. And, and that, how, how we got the New International Version, and you're going to see where I'm going, how this is helpful. It was, it was created over a period of 10 years by 15 biblical scholars, meaning these guys have 
advanced degrees in languages. They had to know not only English really well, but they had to know in the Old Testament case, Hebrew and Aramaic, or they had to know in the New Testament case, Greek and, and English as well. And they had to be able to translate those. So 15 scholars with advanced degrees, people are way smarter than us at these biblical languages, able to do this. And their team included 100 people. About 100 people were a part of this process. People from all over the English-speaking world, they had people from Australia and Canada, the United Kingdom, New Zealand, South Africa. They had people on this group, the the 15 Bible scholars, the 100-plus group of people over 10 years. They had people from 20 different denominations weigh in this. It wasn't just one person's slanted viewpoint trying to get the Bible to say this. It was all across the English-speaking world, all across different denominations, advanced Bible scholars, 100 people. So they did their due diligence over 10 years and got this translation. There's a lot of good English translations, but I'm just saying, go ahead and get online and search it, research it. This is the one we use. That's how they got it. Contrasted to, there's this group, anonymous, you know, and, and all this kind of thing. So that's why it's important to look below the surface. But here's what I'd like to say, too. I've, I've had conversations in, in my life now with people from two different categories who've used the words of the Bible to try to, to manipulate and, and, and push their agenda. I've, I've met people who are non-believers, atheists, or they have some kind of twisted view of faith, and they, they have said, well, I know the Bible says this, but here's what that word actually means. Have you had those conversations? I remember when I was at a party with, with some, and some guys, just got, we were talking, and I started getting to know him and trying to build a relationship, and he brought that up, and, and, and literally he's like, well, I, the Bible teaches this about sexuality, but here's what I think it actually means, and this is what this word actually means and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and then I've also had this conversation with people who are, who are very religious a lot of times, very religious, and, and I've, multiple times in this conversation, and say, well, I, I know that the Bible says this, but here's what it actually meant in the original language, and, and it's something different than what you see with your eye on the page. And here's what I've learned over time. Anybody who says that, what they're actually saying, you know, they might have got on blueletterbible.com and studied, you know, and drilled down on some language tools, or maybe they took a, a semester of Greek in college or something. But whatever they're saying, when they say, I know, what they're saying is, and I, I just, I, I always am respectful, but in my heart, I'm always realizing this when someone says, well, this is what it really says in the original language. What they're saying is their interpretation of that, their knowledge surpasses that of these 15 Bible scholars that took 10 years to interpret these 30,000 verses in these 66 books of the Bible, that their knowledge of what the word actually says exceeds those 15 scholars, those 100 people, the 10 years they invested. So, so if I can get on the internet and say, well, this is what this word actually means, and it doesn't actually mean you can't sin this way. It actually means something different. I, I'm not going to go there because I know my knowledge does not exceed that of that group. And so anytime someone says that, I'm very weary, and I might go do some research and learn and be open, but, but I am always aware that, that what I see written has not just come to me casually. God's word has come to me as a gift from God. In fact, the Bible itself, all 66 books have come through a process. The Old Testament, written between 1300 BC and 400 BC, the New Testament between 45 and 95 AD. How do I know these words on these pages are God's word? Let's just quick have that conversation briefly. One is it states it is. 2 Timothy 3.16, it says all scriptures God breathed. So it claims to be God's word. It's also stood the test of time through very inquisitive minds. Very wise people, men and women over history, have looked at the Bible, analyzed it, critiqued it, tried to prove it wrong. 
And there's so many stories, like C.S. Lewis, one of the well-known Christian authors, wrote Chronicles of Narnia, wrote uh, Mere Christianity, so many great books. He started out trying to prove it wrong and studying it, read it, and he's like, this is true. Lee Strobel, who went on to write The Case for Christ and The Case for Faith and The Case for Easter, all this from a very logical perspective. If that helps you, go dig into that stuff. He, he, was, he was a journalist, and his wife started going to church, and he went and sat in the back row. I'm going to prove this whole thing is phony. <laughs> he sat back there and started learning, investigating like he would on a research project. He's like, this is actually true, changed his life, and then he wrote logically why it all makes sense. So it's proved the test of time with great minds inquiring of it. Jesus, who is outside of Christianity historically acknowledged, in fact, is the most famous person who's ever lived, the most well-known person, most quoted person throughout human history. Jesus Christ himself, even recognized by secular historians, he lived it, he taught it, and he said it was God's word. He quoted it. Also, the word of God in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 it says that it's alive and active. So God's word, it tells us it's alive and active. That means if, it, if that's true, I should see fruit of this. In the wake of it, like a boat, you see a wake behind a boat, I should see fruit of this. I'm telling you as a pastor, you gotta do your own research, but I've seen fruit, man. I've seen marriages changed and healed where they were going opposite directions and God brought them back together. I've seen people who are on addictions and messed up get clean and get their life going in the right direction. I've seen people who are down and out get up and moving towards Jesus and towards light and out of darkness. I've seen fruit. We see seen it in this church, the 200 people we baptized. We've seen God change lives. It's active. It's alive. You, maybe it's active in your own life. I hope it is. I see it in mine. It's also the most printed book in human history. 6.7 billion times, they say. Up to, up to 6.7 billion times this book has been printed on the page just since we could print. It's historically accurate. Archaeologists will have to tell you, even secular archaeologists, we've not been able to prove this book wrong. All of archaeology, there's a lot of history in here. You get into the Old Testament and the Kings and Samuel and all these different books. There's a lot of history. And, and, and talking about secular history, it's, it's, it's in there in reference. There's never been anything contradictory found in archaeology. In fact, there's been time after time. In fact, I have an archaeological study Bible. If that interests you, you can get it and order it on Amazon. And it'll just walk you through, show you artifacts. We found this here. This confirms this verse. It's all over. It's, it's confirming it, never denying it. How we got the Bible, the process of canonization, the Old Testament, the Jewish community, all the Jewish believers together through a process of much time and discernment. These are the books that we believe are inspired by God. They're not just human writings. These affirm our beliefs and confirm it. And these, we believe God's hand is on this. And, and, and then the New Testament came along and the, the early church got together over a period of decades and they affirmed and canonized and said, these are the books that are inspired by God. They didn't do it haphazardly. They didn't just pick some. They had a whole process. They said the books in the New Testament had to be written by an apostle, test one, an apostle or an associate of apostle. Number two, test two, it had to be doctrinally consistent of the beliefs of the early church because it was all oral at the beginning. Jesus passed it on to his followers who started churches and passed it on to them. And so there in the early history, the, it, the process was going on, they say it has to be consistent with what Jesus passed down to us. And number three, it had to have geographical spread. It had to ha gain a hearing beyond the area it was originally written in. And they're saying these, these tests seem to be true. These books seem to be inspired. This is God's word for us. And really, it's ultimately a gift, a gift from God. And that's how, that's how David viewed it. Final verse I wanna read today before I give you this closing point. David viewed it ultimately not as a historical book or even something that we can prove and say, yeah, this is right. He, he viewed it as a gift from God, uh, the perfect gift. You know, before I read you this, you, you may have had a time in your life where you tried to give the perfect gift. My brother-in-law tried to give the perfect gift at this last Christmas, and we're sitting around the tree about to exchange gifts, and, and my wife's mom, Rita, started uh, talking with 
my wife's sister, Kelly, about um, being a teacher. And one's a teacher, one works at a college. And they were just talking about how the gift, they're just having fun, like the gift that they always get every year at Christmas, which they don't know what to do with, is a mug. They don't ever get a teacher a mug because they get mugs all the time, apparently. And they're talking about how they have a million mugs and the, 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 the cabin is full of mugs. And they don't know what to do with the mugs because everybody gets a teacher a mug. And what do you do with a the mug? They have so many mugs. And at this, my brother-in-law, Brent, spoke up. <laughs> and he said, guys, thanks a lot. You just ruined my gift. I got you both personalized mugs with family pictures on them. Thanks. You know, that was my perfect gift, by the way. Oh, man. I love God's word because it's a, it's a, it's a perfect gift that will never let us down. Look, look in closing here what David wrote about God's word, verse 7 of Psalm 119, or Psalm 19. He says, the, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. That's what I want to leave here today with a refreshed soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy. I want more of that joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm. I can build on this, and all of them are righteous. I can build my life on that. Verse 10, they are more precious than gold, much, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb, so they're better than anything I'm gonna find in this life. Verse 11, by them your servant is warned, keeps me aligned on the right track, and I love this. In keeping them, there's great reward. There's what? It's a great reward. So, so God rewards, he blesses. He refreshes my soul and fills me with joy as I'm filled with his word. That's what I want more of. I want more of God's word in my life and I want it more in your life. And as we do that, as we firm up what we believe and, and we get that anchor for our soul and our faith, God will pour his blessing in our life so that we can be a blessing to the world around us. He'll pour in his joy. He'll pour in the blessing of his hope. He'll pour in the blessing of his love. He'll pour in the blessing of his grace and his forgiveness. Life to the full in Jesus through his word. That's what I believe. Right on. Thanks for joining us at Church Experience Online. Please don't forget to check out the website if you'd like to get more connected, learn more, get your questions answered, or support this movement financially. You're now going to hear a Church Experience worship original song, and we hope this gives you an opportunity to worship and reflect on what you learned today. We can move mad.